This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker, a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Nick Morgan to the show. Nick, welcome. Thanks. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, talking about the importance of face-to-face communication in the workplace and beyond. Now, Nick, you and I are kindred spirits in that we are public speakers and we do a lot of coaching for others to help them improve their communication. I'd love your take as a public speaking expert. Why is it so important that we have face-to-face communication, especially in the workplace? Yeah, it's a great question and and it actually uh, the book came about because I was public speaking on body language and communications and in the last couple of years I started getting the same question over and over again which was hey Nick this body language stuff is really interesting and if so much of communication happens through body language FaceTime as you say um, FaceTime in the old-fashioned sense of actually being face-to-face then since I coach or work with a team that is spread all over the world, how do I convey the material that you say, the information that you say is conveyed through body language, how do I convey that in a virtual world? And I got that question enough that I thought I better answer it. And, the, and of course, the research showed um, that there's a huge amount of information that simply doesn't get through the virtual uh, the virtual. Um, ways, forms of communication. And so as a result, um, virtual communication is impoverished in ways that are really important to us humans and the ways we're hardwired to communicate. And that's what happens face to face. That's where we exchange uh, huge amounts of information very efficiently about our intent toward each other. If, if I say something um, that sounds mildly sarcastic or ironic, but I say it with a smile, then you know to take that as a joke. Whereas if I send you an email with something that's mildly sarcastic and at the research shows, you're going to think I'm trashing you and therefore you're going to get angry and feel hurt. That's such a great example, Nick. And as you and I both know, so many uh, industries are really focusing on virtual workforces because it's less expensive. They can get away from brick and mortar office space. They can hire globally. So this is this is not just the new normal. This is the future of, of the world of work as well as the now. So help break it down. What are some of the common ways that work suffers when teams are working remotely and rely on those virtual platforms to communicate. Yeah, I talk about five big problems in the book, but that's a lot to, to uh, swallow. So let's take them one by one. The, the, uh, the first one is, is the one that really starts everything off. That it's the, the problem that all the others flow from, which is the lack of feedback. And so, as I suggested, when, when we communicate face-to-face, we get a lot of feedback about each other's intent, a lot of emotional feedback. But don't be misled by the word emotion, because in the business world, what we care about is each other's intent. So is this person sitting across from me going to support me in my project, or is this person going to try to undermine me? It's basic, very important business questions like that. Uh, Is this person on my team or not? 
Um, and that kind of intent just doesn't come through very clearly um, in email or audio conferences or even video conferences. And we can talk about why that's the case if you want to. But but that's the first uh, real problem. It's just lacking feedback, then we don't have enough information about other people's intent, how they're feeling toward us, what their intentions are. And, and we care about that enormously as human beings. I agree with you 100%. Let's unpack a few of the others. Tell me a little bit more about the lack of empathy in virtual communication. And eventually, I'd love to pick your brain about some solutions that you share so beautifully in the book. Yeah, absolutely. So when we get less feedback, so when I don't know how you're feeling, something unusual, something surprising happens. And that is because in an evolutionary sense, it pays me to be an anxious, scared human being about the future, about the, the immediate future. In other words, if I'm walking through the, the, uh, the jungle, it pays for me to be anxious and worried that there might be a tiger lurking around the corner because then I'll be braced for it. I'll be ready for it. I might react faster. And so that's our, that's our norm. We're hardwired to react. When we don't get good information, we're hardwired to assume the worst. And so when we don't get feedback about each other's intent, then we assume that the other person's intent toward us is probably negative. And as a result, our empathy goes way, way down because we think the world's out to get us. And so uh, the, the person on the other end of the email, the person on the, uh, the, other, the team on the audio conference, we all assume these people are having worse uh, feelings toward us than perhaps they are. And that cuts down on our empathy. And of course, the ultimate result of that is trolling, which goes on way, way too often, as we all know, sadly, in the, in the virtual world. Nick, do you think it's also creating a lack of trust? Clearly, I heard you say misperception is rampant, right? When, when people can't uh, see, have the benefit of body language to discern whether someone might be joking or is sarcastic, as you said. What about trust? Is it really chipping away at trust? Yeah, absolutely. The The nature of trust is fundamentally different online, and it's important for everybody to understand that difference. And, and the way I describe it, I liken it to um, your Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving. So uh, we, we just got through uh, Thanksgiving uh, here in Boston, and like all around the United States, what happens? Well, a family gathers, maybe Uncle Bob has a little too much to drink, and he says something rude or embarrassing, um, and we all hate Uncle Bob for about 10 minutes. But then he goes back to being our Uncle Bob. We we know who he is. We, we trust him in the sense that we know he's going to He's going to act out a little bit at Thanksgiving, but the rest of the year, he's okay. Got it. Well, online, the feeling is very different. When somebody acts out, when somebody gives us negative, uh, a negative response, what do we do? We cut the connection. We don't, we don't let people um, have the benefit of the doubt. We don't cut them slack. Um, and a very simple way to understand this is, is to think about Amazon.com and the retail experience. Now, Amazon has worked incredibly hard to set up trust with all of its many um, customers. And they do that by being endlessly consistent and accommodating and helpful and quick and having all the information that you want and, and putting things like other user reviews in there, all that stuff. And so what happens when you go to another uh, website um, and you try to buy something and the experience isn't quite as good as Amazon? What do you do? 
well, you give up and go back to Amazon. <laughs> and I've been asking uh, people this question as I've been going around speaking about the book, and it's 100% when, when I say, so what if the experience on the other retail site isn't great? What do you do? They all say, well, I leave. You don't right. give them the benefit of the doubt. You don't go back and try again thinking, well, maybe it'll be a little better this time. No, you you leave and you probably go to Amazon. And so that's just a simple retail example. Imagine how much more challenging it is when we're talking about real issues of trust with with uh, customers where the relationship's going to last more than a few seconds, um, with teammates, with uh, um, w with friends and family out of the business uh, setting. So uh, the the issue of of trust on a line is is a very difficult one. It's fundamentally much more fragile much more easily broken online. And the really tragic thing about trust online is when it's broken, you don't ever give anybody a second chance. There's no Uncle Bob uh, situation online. No forgiveness. You know, no I, forgiveness. I find it really interesting, the uh, perfection paradox that we deal with in social media where people are posting their perfect idyllic worlds and the truth is that just doesn't exist. And I, and I think there's a correlation with what you write about in the book, lack of control, expecting people to always perform at their best online. Would you care to speak about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, great, a great comparison. I mean, the, the, the really odd thing when you think about it, of the online experience, of our, of our virtual world experience, is that uh, we formed a substitute for trust. Uh, because trust is hard to establish, and as I say, it's more fragile. And so we have a we have a shortcut to to measure our trust for other people online, which is consistency. And so as soon as somebody is inconsistent, they're they're thrown into our outer darkness. We don't we don't trust them anymore. We don't deal with them anymore if if they're a website. Um, and and that's a really odd thing to do when you think about it, because we humans are never consistent. That's the nature of being human is our inconsistency. We're great one day, another day we may be having a a bad day. We may be having an off day. And so it's it's just really puzzling to me that we would change our paradigm that way and be so tough. On everybody else online, we expect people to cut us slack in the day-to-day -day workplace, but boy, when it comes to the online world, we don't cut them any slack at all. And so there's this, there's this uh, weird inconsistency uh, or double standard that we have for everybody. Uh, we demand, we demand perfect consistency from them, uh, where we never deliver to ourselves. I'm speaking entirely for myself here, of course. <laughs> Nick, we are having a great conversation and I'm going to ask you to hold on. We'll be right back right after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So Nick, speaking of Slack, let's segue into these instant messaging uh, platforms like Slack or IM or even texts where individuals are communicating so rapidly and they're expecting an immediate response. I, again, think this is beautifully uh, correlated to what you write about 
regarding lack of emotion in the book. I think people, I believe, people need to think and be more intention and intentional and thoughtful about communication. And the speed of instant messaging often skews that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so the... The result of uh, what was originally promised to us as friction-free, asynchronous communication, those were the buzzwords back in the day. In other words, uh, email was going to make, and all its uh, successors like Slack and text messaging, were going to make uh, communication much, much easier than, say, writing out a letter and putting it in an envelope and putting a stamp on it and walking into the post office. Who does that anymore? <laughs> and, and so we got, we got uh, friction-free or virtually free uh, communication. Um, and then the asynchronous part was the promise that you and I could send each other emails on our time when it was convenient to us. I could send you one when I was wrapping up for the day at six o'clock on the East Coast, and and you could read it the following morning um, in in the Midwest somewhere over a cup of coffee. But instead, what happened to our promised friction-free asynchronous world was information overload 24/7. And the result is that we have to, to process more and more information. We skim it faster and faster. We reply in more and more superficial ways, and we're more and more error prone. And the, the promise of Slack uh, following on to email was it would be better or easier. Um, and my research shows, and I have a couple of case studies in the book, that in fact, all it's done is it typically gets added on on top of the email uh, deluge, which you're suffering under at work. And text messages have become, in a number of workplaces, just the way of alerting people that they may, there may be a Slack thing that they have to look at or, or an email uh, chain that they have to respond to. And so it all becomes additive. And uh, as I say, we respond more and more desperately trying to keep up with this deluge. And, and the results are not good for our um, for our sanity, for one, but also for the quality of our communications. And as a result, we get more and more uh, miscommunications and our, our, uh, mis uh, our emails and, and other text-based messages tend to get misunderstood. Do you think the pendulum will swing back to slower, more intentional communication and, and different expectations and response time? Or has the train left the station? Well, I'm afraid the train's left the station, but, you know, I wish everybody slow food and, and slow email. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? That'd be great. If, <laughs> yeah, if, if it all could just slow down. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. I have noticed, however, that when I talk to audiences, just on an anecdotal basis, I'll always do a poll and I'll say, have any of you started to either ration your emails or your mobile phone time or your screen time or something like that. And there's always a, a small percentage, somewhere between five and 10% of the audience uh, raises its hand and says, yeah, I'm, I'm doing uh, those things or I'm, I'm uh, deliberately stopping at a certain time and not looking at email again. So some people are doing this, but most of us don't feel like we have the, the ability to do that just because we're always trying to keep up. And for most of us, that, that email uh, list becomes a to-do list, you know, and and so checking off the items by by uh, filing the emails begins to feel like we're getting something done on the to-do list. But of course, it's illusory because there's always another hundred emails right behind those. Exactly, and I think we're tethered to our our devices, our smartphones. So it's very rare, except when you're sleeping, that someone does not have that on their body. Yeah, exactly, and the and the scary thing about that is that there have been two populations studied and both populations um, 
have uh, there's a direct correlation between them the number of hours they spend on their cell phones and the likelihood of their being depressed and then sadly uh, even committing suicide and and those two um, uh, cohorts or population groups are teenage girls which have been studied because they use cell phones a lot and then, and then rather surprisingly just so you just don't you don't think it's just millennials um, retired people the idea, the promise to retired people was, hey, you can stay in touch with your grandchildren, your family, even though you may be housebound or, or less mobile than you used to be. No problem. Um, the virtual world is going to be a great substitute. And it turns out the more time retirees spend on mobile phones, the more likely they are to be depressed as well. So it isn't good for us. And that's the really scary thing behind um, the why I wrote the book. Wow, I'm fascinated by the retirement uh, population. That I didn't know. I'm not surprised about the teenage girls. Let's move to solutions. Your book is such a great resource and has so many action steps to really navigate this whole new virtual world. So give us one or two. What What's the first way that someone listening to this podcast around the world might make a step in the right direction to improve virtual communication? Let's say he or she is a remote worker and uh, is challenged by this. Well, the first thing, and, and this, of course, won't always be possible, but the first thing to think about is, is uh, how can I get regular FaceTime with my team or with my company? Uh, because that uh, is, think of it, even though it's, the remote working has been sold to us as a kind of efficiency, and of course, as you suggested at the beginning of the program, saves tons on, on travel expenses, and, and as a result, we're not going back. Uh, but uh, the... The efficiency of meeting face-to-face -face is that when we get together, we kind of clear out the pipes of all that built-up misunderstanding that comes from online communication. And so we learned that our colleague Jim actually isn't kind of grumpy and angry at us. It was just he had a couple of off days. It had to respond very quickly to emails. We get the full story on Jim. And so we learned he's actually a nice guy. Um, and we can we can get along with him once again. And so FaceTime, that's the first thing. If you can do it, do it because it's going to make your life a lot easier. All right. So let's assume that you're still working virtually. You can't get much FaceTime. What do you do? Then I suggest that, especially with, with uh, teams of people that meet regularly on audio conferences, uh, and when I talk to audiences, that's virtually 100% of people. Uh, a good part of their work life is now spent on audio conference meetings. Um, then I say, begin every meeting with the following simple device. Ask everybody, the, the leader should be in charge of this, go around the room, the virtual room, and ask everybody, how are you feeling? Red light, yellow light, green light. And red light means I'm having an awful, terrible, no good, bad day, I'm probably ready to uh, jump out of this window here that I'm uh, sitting next to. Uh, yellow means things are sort of normally screwed up, but I'm here, I'm listening, it's okay. And then green means everything's great, wonderful. And that allows the leader to um, to check in with the people who report in as red in a way that's just much, much easier than if – imagine trying to begin an audio conference and one person really was facing a severe crisis. Imagine how hard it would be for them at the beginning of an audio conference just to break in and say something about a, a serious family crisis. It just feels really awkward to do that when you're not there face-to-face. -face. And so people tend to, to mute themselves um, on audio conferences and not say those kind of things. You just let it go. Um, especially when you're amber, when you're yellow, you know, it's, uh, it's a, uh, um, it's that low level kind of irritation that you really tend to, to let go. And so this is a good way of checking in. The leader can follow up afterwards with the, with the red 
people um, and maybe with the yellow people as well. And then you can check in again at the end of the audio conference and see how the audio conference has affected you. Maybe you started out yellow, but you got green. That's a, that's good news. Maybe it went the other way. Then you want, then as the leader, you might want to follow up. So that's that's the first very simple way that uh, I suggest to people uh, to make their uh, virtual experience better. Um, the second thing is to assign an MC. Now, this makes people stop and think a little bit more. It, it takes a little more work, a, a little effort. Um, but you're, what you're really asking people to do is put is is to put the care for the body language back into the to the audio conference, which is currently lacking. And so that MC, his job or her job is to track how many people are, are contributing, how many people aren't, to check in with the ones who aren't from time to time. Because the research shows that on a virtual team that, that goes for any length of time, if the communication from everybody is roughly equal, the team will perform much better and feel much better about itself than if the communications are lopsided. In other words, if you have one person dominating the discussion the whole time. So that's another thing you can do is, is, is give somebody the role of MC. Um, a, th a third very simple thing I suggest, and, and I'm sticking to audio conferences, we can talk about uh, email and video if we have time, but uh, audio conferences I found are the most common way that people interact virtually. Um, and, and so a third way is to send quick little 30-second videos just, just from your uh, mobile phone around to everybody. Um, just give people a little tour of your office or take them to lunch with you and show them what you're eating. And this is really fun if you're in different cultures. You can explain a little bit about your culture if you're in another country and, and say, here's what we regularly typically do for lunch, uh, introduce people to a few concepts, uh, differing cultural concepts. Um, and so you can have a lot of fun with that. The key is not to take it too seriously. Don't try to do a highly produced 30-second uh, video. This is not uh, Super Bowl um, advertisement. This is just a, a quick 30-second tour of your office space or, or your lunch break uh, or maybe your commute home. So those are three ways to uh, to help make the experience better. Those are great suggestions. I'm I'm taking notes as you speak. As we wrap up, I would love to to tap your insight about the video conference meeting because some some work environments are empowered with with video communication. So what what's an idea about making that better? Yeah, video is great. That's the first thing to understand. It's better because you can see people's faces, of course. But the second thing to understand is it's not as good as you think. It's not as good as face-to-face. -face. And for the following rather surprising reason. So one of the things our brains do, our unconscious minds, is we keep very careful track, and again, for obvious survival reasons, where we are in space and where everybody who's physically in the same room with us is in space. It's a it's sort of a sixth sense, if you will, that neuroscientists talk about, but most people aren't aware of, um, and it's called proprioception. And we our brains spend a lot of effort doing this, um, again, because it helps keep keep us alive. Now, what happens when you're on a video conference, the brain, the unconscious mind, looks at that two-dimensional representation of another person and it can't figure out where that person is. And so the brain just goes on tilt, working overtime, trying to figure out where's that person far away, near, where is that person in space? And since the brain can't figure it out, it finds it very fatiguing. Now, so it's bad with just one or two people on the video conference, but imagine a room full of people that you can't figure out where they are um, and your brain is just you're going to be exhausted. And so what I say is the first thing to do with video conferences is keep them short or at least give people breaks on a regular basis because 
lacking the ability to know where the other people are in space, it just tires us out. And we don't know why, because we're not consciously aware of it. So it's not obviously tiring, um, but in this, in this strange, uh, unconscious mind way, it's very tiring for our brains. So keep it short. I say take a break after every 10 minutes, if you possibly can. Uh, give people a little couple-minute break and then re-engage. Uh, and the, the other thing you can do, which takes a little more effort, again, um, but is worth it, is you can help the other people on the video conferencing by setting up your room. And I describe how to do this in the book in a way that gives visual cues as to where uh, you are in relation to your camera and how much space there is behind you. So you sort of set up something in the near ground that people the foreground and people can tell how big it is like a plant or something like that and then you have something behind you uh, maybe it's a wall or a picture on the wall that people can relate to and then they can have a slightly easier time locating you in space but understand it's not a good solution because you're still showing up as a, as a two-dimensional picture it's not a perfect solution but it's it helps a little um, so that's for the other people on the call for you you still need to give yourself some breaks Got it. Nick Morgan, I learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise. I want to tell our global listening audience, since this is a podcast, about your book and how they can buy it. It's called Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. And of course, it is widely available in major book retailers and on Amazon, since you mentioned Amazon early, uh, earlier. And I will tell you, I've got it in front of me. I've got it dog-eared and highlighted. It's a great resource. And I am so thankful to you for sharing it with us today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Thanks, Nick. Take good care. And if all of you listening like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps people find us online. And do let us know what career-minded issues you would like for us to discuss on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at Higgins. And of course, I want to recognize my amazing podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for the extraordinary work you do to make this show awesome for our audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening. Whoa.